I'm going to exercise the prerogative of host and ask a question that's not on Slido yet, because it's in my head. <laughs> Pastoral care and public policy on this galaxy of questions tends to be necessarily abstract. But there are very practical and concrete <clears throat> challenges posed to the church in the sacramental economy of salvation. Namely, only a baptized man can become a priest. Only one man and one woman who are both baptized can create the sacrament of matrimony. We have already encountered in the United States biological women who transitioned to male and arrange for falsified documents to present themselves as candidates for holy orders. In many places, the same thing happens with the sacrament of matrimony. <clears throat> and there is an intent to deceive, um, which may or may not ever be discovered. In my time at St. Mary's, we have already discovered one marriage that took place here in which the groom was in fact not a man. Um, last year, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops had to send a notification to all bishops, religious superiors, and seminary rectors to alert them to the possibility that those applying for priestly formation may not necessarily be men while still presenting as. So my question to both of you from whatever perspective you want to answer is, yes, we have to accompany. Yes, we have to um, welcome and um, suffer with in all the ways you've indicated. And yet at the end of the day, there's a point beyond which we have to say this is impossible and anything beyond this point is fraud. Please comment. No, <laughs> no I, that's a great question. Um, and so a couple of things. I, I know also of situations where people were married by sort of subterfuge. But in one case, I'm thinking the woman who had transitioned and was presenting herself as a man really thought she sort of qualified. She was not a Catholic, so it was a Catholic, non-Catholic marriage. But um, at any rate, one of the things I think is important to know is for the church is that in every state of the union, you can change your birth certificate. And in most of those states, reissue the birth certificate with no notation that shows that you ever, you were born the opposite sex. So for the church, dealing with its own baptism is one of the things that, you know, we typically recommend is make sure you are putting in the church's records the sex of the child when they're baptized. Now it's a lot, it's, it's difficult with adults because someone could come to you post quote transition and with the use of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones in youth, you can have someone who will be more convincing in appearance. Someone who transitions at the age of 55, let's say a male, you can tell. You can tell, it's, it's not hard. 
but it's more difficult when you get young people who have had the influence of those cross-sex hormones. They're still their birth sex. But, but there, one of the things you can do is you can ask for um, an affidavit. You know, they have to make that statement that this birth certificate has not been altered or this birth certificate represents the sex they were born as. In other words, you're asking them for an additional affirmation of truth, which can help to, to, to raise the issue for someone who may not be aware of it. Um, but I, I think, too, it, it, it points to another problem that um, I think people are encountering in parishes when you have someone, let's say an adult, who comes, who's transitioned, they come through RCIA, and they may or may not reveal where they are, and that's something I think the church just has to be upfront and ask those questions, because it's ultimately not to the person's good for them to persist in, this, in um, this false identification, even if they can't, they're sort of too far down the road to reverse the process medically. I know of some situations, what's important is that they, they understand the truth of who they are and they accept that. So the CDF answered a query from a bishop in, I believe it was Spain, who was saying, can someone who has transitioned be a godparent? And the answer was no not because they're, they're um, terrible people or something, not at all, but it was for this position as godparent, you are, you are guiding others in faith, and you have, to be, you have to understand and accept in your own life the truth about who we are, you know, the essential truths of the faith. So I think there's a similar process that we need to ask people to go through in terms of RCIA. So. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think the subject, in my, in my estimation, the subject of the kind of pastoral accompaniment and even potentially, if, if, if we get to the realm of maybe concessions, are those within the church acting in good faith. And I think what, what you describe, Father, would be those seeking to act not in good faith uh, through deception, um, whereas what I'm envisioning is how do, we, how do we journey with those who say, I, I love the Lord Jesus, I wanna follow the gospel, yet I have this experience and I don't know how to square the circle. But I know absolutely, I mean, the, the physicality of the sacraments, we don't, we don't mess with, you know, things other than bread and wine at the Eucharist. That physicality is essential and we have to affirm that. Many feel dismissed or shamed by those who try to share the truth about gender and sex, um, but who miss the mark on speaking the truth in love. So the question is, how can we help Christians speak the truth in love in a way that will not cause dismissal or shame in those who are struggling with these questions? I, I don't think it happens in one conversation. I think a lot of times where we get into trouble is we imagine, okay, I'm going to have this conversation and I need to be able to express to them why it is I love them so that I can get to the point I want to make, whereas a relationship of love authentically um, is not going to be just that conversation. You know? and, and that trust and that love should be something that was witnessed to, hopefully, God willing, prior to that conversation. Otherwise, there's, um, I don't know that the witness would be that efficacious. 
Yeah, um, one helpful distinction I've heard a number of people make is that it's important to affirm the person. It doesn't mean you affirm the false belief or affirm the false identity. So how do you affirm a person? Someone comes to you and, and they say, this is either I am transgender or I'm struggling with my identity. You know, first, let's talk about adults first because it's different with kids. You have an adult and ask their name. Adults are, can change their name and call themselves whatever they want. So if someone, if John calls himself Julie, if he's changed his name and he's an adult, fine, I'll call him Julie if that's his name. But then you say, all right, you know, I, you give them your presence, be fully present to them, your eyes, your, you have to love them in truth. You have to really care about that and that shows itself. And then you ask them, you have to show some curiosity and, and really listen. Tell me about you. Tell me about your journey. Tell me about your experience. I'm talking about someone who's got the time. This is not a two-minute encounter. But if someone comes to your office and they're seeking help or, or, or something like that, understand where they're coming from. And then you can reassure them you love them, but there are some things that you know, need further conversation. They're important to distinguish. So it's, it's that attitude of love, it has to be genuine. That posture of eyes, attentiveness, et cetera, that communicates you're, you're worth something. You're significant. We may not agree on at the outset, that's important. With children, it's different. If you have a teen, let's say you're a youth minister, and a kid comes to you and says, I'm trans. Again, you can say, I love you, thanks for talking, you know, bringing this to me, let's, let's talk, I want to understand, tell me more. But it's really, it's really problematic when other adults affirm a child down a path that just is only gonna lead towards harm. It's not true. So you have to be really um, willing not to, not to sort of give in to the temptation to quote, meet them where they are, they're using a different name, they're dressing the opposite, and they want to be validated in that. When you go down and start entering their narrative, you are telling them, I accept this false belief, I think it's true too, I'm gonna to treat you this way, and you're also leaving their parents sort of hanging, because parents who are trying not to affirm one of the most destructive things is when other adults come in and affirm the child's false belief. And we've got to remember it. It's a false belief. It's a false perception. So there's, there can be real emotional distress around that, but it's, it's, not, it's not a good thing for them to be holding on to that because of where it leads. So in the ideal, you need to help unpack, help them, help um, them share so you can understand where this is coming from, what are the other influences, um, and there's, there's a longer conversation, but I don't want to monopolize this, but I'm happy to give some other um, tips and, and thoughts about ways to do that in a longer conversation, but. No, I, th I, think, I think that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, we've got, we got nothing to add to that. <laughs> For whomever asked the question, my suggestion is think of the Lord Jesus and the woman called in adultery. He does not condemn her. He does not shame her, scorn her, or allow others to do the same. At the same time, he does not say to her, go back to your lover's bed. 
Next question. Are these gender concerns primarily a feature of Western culture, or are they also growing in Africa, Asia, and other places? I, I can speak to that. So it's, it's becoming an increasing part of the narrative that, oh, this is global. We see it just like it is here, and we've seen it all throughout history. And that's, that's not true. I was talking with an anthropologist the other day who has done an extensive deep dive into this, and he said, yes, it's true that you have in some other cultures people who are uh, typically male, who struggle with their sexuality, who may present as women. It's not the same thing as what we're seeing with the, with the quote, transgender population. It's just, and, and certainly not to the same degree. So that's it's not quite true to the extent that's in the narrative. What is true is that we are seeing a global push to normalize this. The UN, for example, has adopted a posture of saying who you are is, is self-defined, your gender identity, and that it's a human right to be able to modify your body in, order to, in any way you want in order to express that identity. So they're putting a lot of pressure on people across the globe to comply with that when they do their periodic reviews. So I work with Catholics in the Caribbean, for example, where they have a very traditional culture, and, they are, they, and yet they rely on UN money. And they're being pushed to loosen their laws, validate all these concepts as a condition for receiving funds. It's something Pope Francis had spoken about. So it's not, it's not intrinsic to the human person that you're going to have this, this certain percentage of people who are so confused about their We've, you know, it's, it's part of human nature to recognize male and female. That's what's intrinsic. The fact that some people can get confused is, is more reflective of the circumstances, particularly the circumstances today in, in which we find ourselves. Anything to add to that, Father? Father Michael Carey from St. Martin de Porres in Colombia is making the point that the Western perception of these questions is spread through social media. So kids in Africa or Asia who are watching TikTok uh, or other forms of uh, social media are learning these things from the Western sources. Um, how can one find counselors especially for children, who will address these questions from a Christian anthropological standpoint, since most cannot or will not advertise and are scared to speak up? Talk, talk to your priest. If you're talk to him. Here. <laughs> no, don't, no, don't, don't email me, please. Um, no, I think, I think, you know, in conjunction with your parishes, working with them to come up with sort of lists of counselors within a, within a Catholic worldview. I know I've been referring just this past week to, to two different individuals. I've been referring, um, you know, contact information of, of Catholic counselors for various things. And those people, uh, I can't speak to other communities, but at least here in Greenville, uh, we're blessed with a good number. Uh, I think we've got, we got one in the, the crowd right now, at least. So. Um, yeah, be, be speaking with your priests and, and your parish leadership here. I can't vouch for 
other places. Yeah, so I can add some um, specifics on that. The Personal Identity Project, which is the project I run, if you click the Resources button, we've got, um, you can find your way to recommendations for both support groups but also counselors. And the counseling, counseling umbrella groups that we list there are those that have committed to be faithful to the church's teaching. So for example, Catholic Psychotherapy Association. To be part of that, you have to commit to be faithful to the church's teaching. And they have people all over the country who commit to that and there's a registry so you can look. Having said that, you have to do due diligence. You have to talk directly with the counselor and ask where they stand on the gender affirming thing just to make sure. The other thing, um, there are a number, an increasing number, and again, you can find references on our website. Um, there are increasing number of practices that are working telehealth, you know, counselors who are doing sort of video counseling, uh, and there are some really good ones out there. So some of the parent groups that I work with have excellent networks where they don't advertise, they're not gonna put the names of the good counselors who work, especially doing telemedicine, but if you connect through their support groups, then they can refer you and, and put you in touch with them. So one group is parents of ROGD kids. ROGD is the, what Father referred to, rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's, it's not a diagnosis, it's a description. So parents observe this happening. But anyway, they have a tremendous network across the country and they can help people. Um, the other thing that I would encourage people to realize is not everything needs counseling. Some of these kids are kids who have underlying issues, let's say they're on the autism spectrum, and, uh, and they get caught into this sometimes for, for just sort of basic human needs. Like they're lonely, they wanna fit in. This is the crowd that welcomes them. So there's, there's a lot that parents can do and we shouldn't always think, I, I as a parent can do nothing until I get my kid in counseling. There's a lot you can do. And so to that end, there's, um, there's a book called Desist, Detrans, Detox by a woman named Maria Keffler, who has worked with hundreds of families. And in that book, it's on, it's on our website too, um, there's really good practical information. When your kid says this, here's the kind of question you can ask them. How do you help them? How do you challenge their thinking? How do you cut off the negative influences? How do you strengthen your relationship, which is a really, really important thing when you have a child who's getting caught up in this. You have to find ways to strengthen your relationship with them apart from the trans issue. So anyway, there's a wealth of just practical wisdom in there. And then the final thing I'd recommend is in um, many places, the Encourage chapters related to the Courage Ministry have uh, both groups that are in person, but also they have some, some video groups that are parents who are dealing with this. And I was talking to a woman who was in one in another state just uh, about a week and a half ago, and she networks with an awful lot of other families, and she was saying of all the families that she knows who are dealing with, with this, and she knows hundreds, she said those who are simply in secular sort of parent support groups, most of them end up alienated from their kids. In other words, those relationships are just ruptured. Whereas in the Encourage group, even when you have parents, the parents are not affirming their kids going down this transition path, but there's that support and the Catholic ethos that helps them 
guides the parents to deepen their own spiritual lives, but also to learn how to maintain that relationship to the extent you can so that you don't have that alienation. And sometimes the kid walks away and you have to be um, patient and long-suffering and, and pray, but, but by and large, there's just um, a lot that can be gained by being in the company of others who are prayerful, who are experiencing that same deep suffering, but also have some, some practical wisdom to share. I, 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 the only thing I would add to that is, and I like the, the image of the woman at the well, because I think where we can reorient some of this is remembering that a relationship with the Lord Jesus is going to be primary. You know, if, if we get this person, you know, thinking aright in a place where they're, they're no longer feeling attention, and yet they still are in a place where they're not in relationship with the Lord Jesus, uh, that has to be primary. And then from that, if they're seeking to live in that relationship and, and walk as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that is a place of, of commonality. Um, and again, what I was envisioning as I was speaking is, where are the people who are serious about their faith or from, from a perspective of wanting to follow the Lord and yet have this. But no, I, I think that's absolutely true. What advice would you give those of us who could lose our jobs if we do not affirm the stated gender identity of our colleagues or students? Well, unfortunately, it's an increasing problem. However, so, Here's, here's the thing, it depends on, on where you are. If you're in a private company, a private company can do what, it, what you want. And you have to be prudent. Sometimes you can avoid these Most of us, when we talk to people, we don't use someone's pronouns, we use their names. You can use an adult's name, you're not pushing them down that path, because adults are free in our country to change their names and, and be called whatever they want. With children, as I said, it's a different thing because changing, validating that name change for a minor means you are, um, you're literally helping to further them down that path and at a time when they need to be, to be pulled back. Um, if, you're in a, if you're in a profession that requires you to be literally validating that gender identity, at some point you're gonna have to figure out where, where your conscience lies. So for example, um, Increasingly, medical professionals are finding themselves to be being pushed towards validating or even participating in transition activities, that medical transition activities, which you just can't do. You, you just can't do. You can't mutilate a healthy body when there's, when there's no benefit, and there is no benefit. I meant to say in, in my talk that when you look at the long-term data on suicide and the benefit comes from Europe because they have socialized medicine. When you look at the long-term data, you don't see the phenomenon of people transitioning and doing better in terms of mental health. What you see is that initially there can be sort of what they call a euphoria or a honeymoon period for a couple of years because they're getting all this validation and then it drops off. Particularly, there was one study that came out last year that where they tracked uh, suicide, suicidality and stages of transition and they found People were attempting or committing suicide at all stages of transition, and the average time to suicide for those who completed suicide was six years after they began their transition path. So if this were a solution, you would not see that. You would see increased mental health and, and all of this. So you have to realize this is not healthy. 
This is not, you're not helping someone. So as a matter of conscience, we don't want to be facilitating behavior that we know is, is either gonna lead to direct sterilization or is gonna mutilate the body or, or harm someone. And, and you've gotta figure out whether you're willing to stand on conscience. But generally, I think a lot of issues can be avoided because you have to be prudent if this is your only job. You know, don't use the pronouns, do the workarounds, avoid it as much as you can and keep your head down. But at some point, you have to figure out where your, your line is. It's, um, so every, every few months, I have to gather with, uh, I shouldn't say have to, I gather with the other supporting clergy of Furman University Campus Ministry. And in the context of those meetings, I'm with um, Reverend Tom, Reverend Janet, Mother Kelly from the Anglican group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously for me as a, as a Catholic priest, the terms father and reverend, those have very particular meanings. But when I gather with those groups, I refer to Mother Kelly as Mother Kelly. She thinks that she has a priesthood that is the equivalent of mine. That is not true, that is a falsehood. But in those settings, for prudential reasons, and in some, in some cases for just kindness, because we're not in any kind of real relationship uh, of friendship or of where I could be educative or corrective to them, I maintain what they have asked to be called. That's, that's the best example in, in my own experience of that kind of thing where this is, we have a disagreement here, but they're adults, this is a, a work situation, and out of prudence and kindness, I'm gonna call them what they've asked to be called. Social lubrication. That's probably not how I would have phrased it, but yes, that's right. Father, Father if I can add something to that. I, I would distinguish between the school situation and the work situation. So for example, you know, the points you're making are, are really good ones, but in a school situation, one thing that has been increasingly in the Catholic media is, oh, these Catholic schools are refusing to affirm and validate trans kids, and they're not using their names, they're not letting them access the bathroom they want, et cetera. And so one of the things you have to realize is that as an institution, we have an identity that's rooted in Jesus Christ, it's rooted in the truth, the church has to be the church, and the school has to be faithful to its mission and identity, which means if you're going to relate to people, you relate to people in light of the truth about who they are, which created male and female. So one of the things that's important, and I'm happy to see more dioceses doing this, them coming out and just saying, look, this is who we are as a Catholic school. This is what we believe. Because we believe this, we know it's, it's not a kindness to lie to people. We, we treat people in, um, always in accord with truth about the person is your created male or female. So everyone in our community is going to be regarded and, and treated with the dignity appropriate to their humanity, but in light of the truth that they're male or female. Um, so I, I think that's an important distinction just to... One of the challenges of the cancel culture, which now especially dominates university life, is that rather than a commitment to freedom of speech for all, we have a commitment of freedom of speech for those who agree with me. And anything I find disagreeable 
is by definition hateful and therefore will be prevented. That's the context for this. Uh, Ryan Anderson, uh, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, of which Mary is a fellow, published several years ago an important book about these questions called When Harry Became Sally. And it's an exploration of the evolution within um, the medical sciences of these questions. The book, like all books, was available on Amazon until it was not. It was just canceled with no explanation, no appeal, boom, it disappeared into a black hole. In the context of that kind of cancellation and the claim that the gospel is hate speech, where do we start? We, I think that's probably a good place because we have for, for decades now assumed that the culture, if not at least encouraging our Christian faith, would at least be quietly affirming of it. And that is no longer the case. So that now it's very clear we're dealing with a culture that is mission territory. And I think Christians, sometimes we forget that and we need to be continually reminded that this is mission territory and that the answer to this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the prevailing uh, cultural gatekeepers are seeing particular things as a threat to the prevailing cultural norm, that's good, because they are. And the gospel of Jesus is, is a threat to the dark powers and to all the powers that want to twist and distort the created order. So I'm glad they've, they've picked up on that. And, but, but the mystery of the gospel is that somehow this gospel, which is also off-putting and offensive, is yet still compelling. And when people hear it, the spirit works and they're drawn to it. So I still think it's good news. I, I would say, too, that um, we need in everything we do, be unfailingly kind. You know, I, my own experience is people who are dealing with these issues and those who love them are just in a lot of pain. There's, it is a difficult situation. Just be kind. Be unfailingly kind. But at the same time, we have to be willing to speak the truth. Because the other thing I've observed is that when one person has the courage of their convictions to say, you know what, male, female, you can't change sex. I, you know, I love everyone, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be forced to tell a lie to participate in someone else's narrative, that other people will kind of look around and then, yeah, they start nodding. And people gain courage when others have the courage of their convictions. So I think it's an important time to speak the truth. There's an opportunity, right? Would we, 20 years ago, have been talking about Christian anthropology? No. It would have been a nice academic subject. But it's real. It's who we are, and this is an opportunity to share the gospel and, and to help people understand just the beauty of being created by God and having, uh, he's got a plan for us and all the mystery and, and that go along with that. But there's good news, and this is an opportunity 
to present that. Um, the other thing I would say is that different from countries in Europe, for example, where they don't have the First Amendment, we have robust religious freedom and first er, free speech protections. Now the problem is um, it takes a while to litigate those things. So in the meantime, people feel like they're shut down and they can't afford to, to speak the truth. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it's not, the answer to that isn't to go silent, to give in to cancel culture and to just sort of shrug and assume, well, maybe it's gonna blow over. It's not gonna blow over. It's not gonna blow over because that's the other thing that I would emphasize here. I think people made a mistake in when uh, the same-sex marriage battle was going on and then the Supreme Court sort of dunked and decided, nope, it's gonna be legal everywhere. I think a lot of people thought, okay, phew, that's off the table, now we can all, you be you, we'll be us, and we can all get along. And it's just not true because the ideologues who are pushing this have a goal that really is to dismantle the family, denies the truth about the person, and they're not going to stop. And right now there's a lot of power behind that goal. So it's, we're fooling ourselves if we think we can sort of sit back and wait for it to blow over. It's not going to. It's going to get worse to the extent that good people don't fight the battles. And, and that's different from, the political, the cultural, is different from how you engage with the person who's hurting in front of you. Just be unfailingly kind, but when called upon, be willing to set your boundaries. I think that's something parents, especially today, have a hard time doing. You can love a child, you can say, look, I understand, I wanna understand why you're feeling this way, but I cannot, because I love you, there are things I cannot do. I cannot say, I'm gonna take you to the, the endocrinologist to get your testosterone, which will lead to your sterility, et cetera. That's, that's a boundary I cannot cross because I have an obligation to God and I have an obligation to you. So be willing to, to um, draw boundaries in love and then continue to treat people kindly. Mary Hassan and Jonathan Duncan, thank you for your wisdom. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you for coming. <laughs>